Good evening. I'm putting this warning at the beginning. Tonight's episode will deal with Lot and the, uh, the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm just going to go ahead and add this to the beginning of the episode and just tell people that tonight's SE episode is also PG. So you want to uh, be a little careful if you want your young children to hear about this because we're going to be dealing of course, with Sodom and Gomorrah and the questions of homosexual sex and rape. So just to, uh, to let you know that tonight's episode will be PG. Lot. Well... What can we say about Lot? He's the nephew of Abraham, and he's a controversial figure in the Bible. I would hazard a guess that most people listening to this podcast have no idea how controversial Lot really is. The rabbinical scholars have rendered much material much rather negative material about Lot. Many Christian scholars have rendered a lot of positive material about Lot. And then you get a minority of Christians that have rendered negative material and a minority of, of, at least from my research, a minority of rabbinical scholars that have said that Lot was a great pillar of righteousness. He's controversial. Opinion on him is greatly divided. And so this was a difficult lesson for me to get through tonight, and it's an SE episode, but I'll tell you, it felt like a DE episode doing this research because it is extremely difficult to pin down an opinion of Lot that you feel real comfortable with. It's hard to say he is a righteous man when you look at his actions. Yet, Peter refers to him as righteous. And so people want to take Peter at his word, but just how righteous was he? What do we know about him? We know that he was a man of property. We know that he chose to live in Sodom, or Sodom, as some people pronounce it. And we know that he's saved from certain death by God through a pair of angels. And we know that his daughters rape him. And through them, his sons slash grandsons found two nations that fall to false gods and become bitter enemies of the nation of Israel. Yet, strange as it is, this line of Moab, Ammon being the other line, but the line of Moab was referred to as God's wash basin. Such was God's contempt for Moab. Yet this nation that was founded in incest, 
and rape is extremely important. And as detestable as their practices were, offering human sacrifices, in fact, sacrifices of infants to a false god, Moab is owed something of gratitude by us. Strange as that sounds, because from Moab came Ruth. And Ruth becomes a symbol of redemption for Lot's line. A line that ultimately leads to King David, Solomon, and eventually to Joseph and Mary, and Yeshua, the Messiah himself. So, it bodes the question, who was Lot? What was he like? And what role did he play? And just exactly how righteous was he? Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your host on this journey through the history and debates surrounding the Bible. If you like Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies, don't forget to like and subscribe and tell others about the show. I'm also developing a Facebook page in full transparency. I don't know how to work Facebook, so I'm learning. But uh, I'm developing a Facebook page for Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. And I'll be posting updates and news about upcoming episodes there. So tonight we're going to jump into this. And as you could tell from the intro, I'm not real comfortable with this episode. You know, I've talked about circumcision in episodes, and I've talked about, uh, you know, accusations of incest and even uh, molestation and stuff that happens in the Bible, and that stuff is, is clearly in there. And while those give me a certain level of discomfort, those subjects are uncomfortable. What I'm uncomfortable with talking about Lot is I'm not real sure how I feel about Lot. I'll be honest. You know, most of the time, I try not to take sides too hard on anything, but I do have an opinion. And this is one of those instances where, I'll be honest, I really don't, I really don't know. I still haven't figured out what. So we're going to talk about views tonight, and we're going to talk about speculations. And I'm probably going to leave you as sort of confused about my or confused about your feelings about Lot as I am about mine. I still just don't quite know what to make of Lot. So let's dive into the story of Lot and let's talk about his character. And I'm going to be objective here and I'm, and as much as I can be because I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused a bit by him. So I, I'm hoping I can be you know, very objective because I don't know if he's righteous or he's not. So I'm going to try to just present this basically as the scriptures say, and we'll talk about the different views. And, you know, I'm going to let you decide how you feel about Lot. And maybe you won't know how you feel about him, much the same way I am. Now, most people only know about Lot as a cursory player in the larger story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he actually, through his lineage, like I said, plays a much bigger role than a lot of people realize because from his lineage comes Ruth. And Ruth gives rise 
to the line of David, Solomon, and ultimately Yeshua. Now, Lot is first mentioned in Genesis 11 as part of the genealogy. He then gets mentioned again in the next chapter, which is chapter 12. And we're told that he's kind of tagging along with Uncle, Uncle Abe. Okay? He's, he's, he's tagging along with Uncle Abraham, and he goes to Egypt with him. And we see in chapter 13 that Lot went with Abraham out of Egypt, and Lot prospers as he follows his uncle around. He becomes a man of property, too. Now, exactly how he becomes a man of property is a little bit obscure. There's a couple of traditions there. Some, some suppose that, um, that Lot becomes a man of property owing to the good graces of his uncle. Others suppose that he already had property from his father, which is Abraham's brother. Other people suppose that he was savvy and grew his own property while helping out his, his uncle. We don't really know. The Bible is a bit silent on that. So I point that out because the Bible is rather frustrating when it comes to understanding anything about Lot prior to him going to Sodom. We don't get a lot. We don't get a lot about Lot. Okay? So just understand that. So let's look in the Masoretic text and we'll talk about, we'll start talking about Lot from the first time we see a decision by him. In a way, we're going to be using this narrative that we see in the text to try to draw a conclusion about his character. Because oftentimes, the best way to get to know a person's character is to look at the decisions they make. So let's read from the Masoretic text. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the circuit of Jordan, that it was well watered before Jehovah destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we'll talk about Sodom for a second. Sodom is the most common pronunciation. Sodom is another pronunciation. Sodom is another pronunciation. All three are correct, and I don't really know which one it was at the time, and I don't think anybody else does either, so don't make it fun of anybody. Uh, I'll sometimes call it Sodom. I'll sometimes call it Sodom. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll wax back and forth sometimes, but uh, it's actually pronounced either way. And Gomorrah is the way that the other city is often rendered. Uh, I have been told that the actual correct pronunciation is Gomorrah. Is Gomorrah. So it's supposed to be a long O first. I've been told that. I've had other people say, no, it's a short O. So just understand, if you go out and study this and you watch YouTube videos, the most common you'll see is Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, you will find other people, particularly uh, rabbis, that will pronounce this a little differently. So just understand that. So anyway, um, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the circuit of the Jordan, that it was well watered before Jehovah destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah even like the garden of Yehovah, like the land of Egypt as you come to Zoar. Then Lot chose all the circuit of Jordan for himself, and Lot pulled up toward the east, and they were separated, each one from his brother. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived in the cities of the circuit and tented as far as Sodom. So let's look at the Septuagint. And Lot 
having lifted up his eyes, observed all the country round about Jordan, that it was well watered before God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. As the garden of the Lord, and as the, as the land of Egypt, until you come to Zogorah, which is Greek version of Zoar. And Lot chose for himself all the country round Jordan, and Lot went from the east, and they were separated each from his brother. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived in a city of the neighboring people, and pitched his tent in Sodom. So one thing we need to point out here is that Abram, according to the biblical narrative, has acquired much wealth, and Lot appears to have acquired wealth either by proxy through the good graces of his uncle, as I mentioned before, or maybe he was savvy and grew wealth himself. Maybe he had some from his father and, and grew it. But in this circumstance, what's happened is there's strife between the shepherds under Lot and the shepherds under Abram. And they're starting to fight with each other. And I, I, I'm sure there was mixing of the flocks and people trying to, well, that one's mine, and no, that belongs to us. And there was strife that arose. So Abram says, okay, well, let's just separate ourselves. You take one, you know, one plot of land, I'll take another plot of land. Abram, as the elder, really had the right to give land to Lot of Abram's choosing. In other words, Abram had the right to tell Lot, no, I'm going to take this land. I want you to go and get this land. But note that Abram doesn't do that in the narrative. He doesn't. That's something to note. He doesn't do that. He lets Lot choose. Now, I've got to point something out here. The land before them is made up, like any giant plot of land, of various ecosystems, if you want to use the scientific term. You've got some bad desert land, you've got some decent land, you've got good land, and then you've got really choice land. So the land before them runs the gamut. Now, Lot would have been, let's just say this categorically, Lot would have been an imbecile if he had chosen the bad desert for his flocks, right? I mean, he could have chosen decent land, but if he really wants to grow his flocks, he needs good land. So you would expect him to choose some good land. I mean, that, it, you, you can't expect someone to be so honorable that they're an imbecile. Okay? But what Lot does is he chooses the choicest land. All of it. For himself. Now, that shouldn't be very surprising to us. You know, it's been said that the universe runs on physics and self-interest, right? If it's an inanimate object, it runs purely by physics. Anything, that, anything that's alive and can move is going to have some degree of self-interest. So Lot chooses not good land, but the very best, and takes it all. And it's all the land that, by rights, Brahm should have chosen as the elder and the one God promises the land to. So this gives us a little insight into the character of Lot. The honorable thing to do on Lot's part would have been to take good land and leave the choicest land for his elder guardian and mentor, 
or to sit down and say, I'll take good land, but I'd like some of the choice land. Can we work out how we can divide this veil of the Jordan? And Lot could have taken the west or the east side, either one, or he could have taken north and south. And they could have both had choicest land as part of their possession. But that's not what he does. He claims all the choicest land and leaves Abram with good land, decent land, and bad desert. Now when I say good, I mean it's relatively good, but it's not the choicest land. <clears throat> so this gives you a little insight. Now it should be noteworthy that Moab and Ammon lose that land. The veil of the Jordan is lost to Lot's descendants. And Moab ultimately uh, winds up in the highlands, and it's still rich land, the highlands down on the east, eastern part of the Red Sea. Those highlands are rich land, but he, his people, Moab's people, are dispossessed of the Vale of the Jordan, and so is Ammon's people. So they ultimately lose the Vale of the Jordan later. But for now, Lot takes the best for himself. And if he is supposed to be such an upright and righteous man, that doesn't seem like a really upright and righteous move, does it? Now, again, like I said, one thing to understand is, is that political boundaries shift over time. And so when we talk about Moab, it, it's a little deceiving. A lot of people don't understand, you know, when I talk about Mount Nebo being in Moab, because if you look at maps from much later, Mount Nebo is not in Moab. So let's just talk about that for a little bit. The political boundaries shift over time with the waxing and waning of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Moab, at the time of Moshe, includes the Jordan River as a border, and the eastern part of the Vale of the Jordan, including Mount Nebo, is in Moab. And the plains to the north of Nebo are called the plains of Moab. Later, this area gets taken by the tribes of Gad and Reuben, and they take these areas, and Moab winds up moving south to the highlands next to the Dead Sea. So just understand that. If you look at, at maps after the, the return of Israel, Moab is not, you know, is not where we're told Moab is in Deuteronomy. Because it talks about that, that Moshe dies and he was in the land of Moab on, on, in the region of Pisgah on Mount Nebo when he looks over the Jordan Valley. That's not Moab after the tribes of Israel move in and start conquering everything. So a lot of people sometimes get confused on that because they say, well, wait a minute, Moab's way down here. So he was looking across the Dead Sea. No, Moab was further north at the time of Moshe, and the nation gets displaced, and they move south. So just understand that. But the thing to remember here, like I said, is that Lot chooses the choicest land. Then we have Lot living in Sodom. So let's get the backstory here of what's going on. Now, you need to understand this. I'm going to say this right now. Sodom and Gomorrah were not the only cities destroyed in this judgment by God. 
there were more cities. In fact, Lot begs the angels to spare one of the smaller cities that becomes known as Zoar. And they spare it, although it doesn't appear they spared the people. We'll get to that when they get there. But apparently, when Lot and his daughters arrive at Zoar, nobody's there. And there's a couple of different speculations uh, about why that is. But understand, Sodom and Gomorrah are the two major city-states there, but they're not the only ones. And actually, it's more than Sodom and Gomorrah that get destroyed. There's smaller cities and towns and villages around there that are wiped out as well. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? But they're the two biggest ones. They're the two big players, and they're the two that get remembered because they were the great sinful cities. But the other little villages and stuff around them and smaller cities apparently were just about as bad. And Zoar was scheduled to be wiped from the earth, but apparently Lot convinces God to spare that because he wants to run there, but something happens to the people. So let's set the stage. And we're going to start reading here, and this is chapter 14. Now, I'm going to tell you that when you start reading chapter 14, it gets really hard to read, and it gets painful to... <laughs> it's hard to read and even more painful to listen to because these names are, to say the least, we'll call them difficult, okay? Uh, they, are, they are extremely difficult names, and... You know, Chertelamer, you've got uh, Amraphel, you've, I mean, you've got some of the worst names in the Bible in this stretch of Scripture. And I'll just read you the first verse to give you a little taste, because I'm not going to read all of this, because these names are, are just painful to listen to. But let's just, you know, it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and title king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. So, you can see that these are these are painful names to kind of go through. But the bottom line here is this Chedorlaomer winds up creating a multi-nation faction, mostly through conquering. And I want to point out that they serve him. He, he becomes sort of their, their emperor as a way. You've got all these little kings, but they wind up being under tribute to this one guy. And he, this Chedorlaomer is sort of like an emperor. And on the 13th year, they rebel. They go against him. Now, I also want to point out something real quick here that it, it talks about when we start talking about what all Chedorlaomer does, you start in, in verse 5, in the 14th year, he's going to put down this rebellion. He goes against the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Horim. Now, these are Rephaim. These are descendants of the Nephilim. And I think that needs to be sort of pointed out here. 
And I want to point out here too, while I'm at this, there are some people out there that, were, that will say that there were no post-flood Nephilim. But that's not true. If you don't believe me, read Genesis 6 where it talks about there were Nephilim in the earth in those days. What days? The days of Noah. And also after that, there were some survivors. And we see them show up in Numbers 13.33 when they go and check out the land of Canaan. They, they, they send the spies in and Joshua and Caleb come back and say, yeah, there's giants in the land, but we've got God on our side. We can take them. And the other ten are like, no, 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 the Nephilim are in the land and we were as grasshoppers in their sight. So it, it, the Bible clearly tells us there are post-flood Nephilim. Okay? And when we talk about the Nephilim, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, uh, the, the two traditions. One tradition is that there, were, uh, that there were actually survivors because of a promise God made about the seed of the serpent. So some of them had to be left alive. So there were actually some places the flood didn't reach because God had, because of his promise to the serpent about enmity between the seed of the woman and thy seed, that he had to leave some of them alive uh, for that enmity to go on. Uh, and so there's a view of that. And there's another view that there was a second incursion view, uh, which is a second group of angels coming in and impregnate women. So we'll talk about that in a later episode. But I just want to go ahead and set that stage for, for a later episode that these these descendants of the Nephilim, these giants, were all over the place in Canaan at this time. All right? They were already there at the time of Abraham. They were already there. And a lot of people miss that. These Nephilim were already there at the time of Abraham. And they multiply and they take over large tracts of land during the exile into Egypt and the captivity in Egypt. And then when they come back, they're all over the place. So I just want to point that out here. So in the 14th year, um, Chertolomer and the kings that were with him came and struck the giants in Asheroth, uh, Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emim in Shavith, Kirathayim, and the Horites in the hills of Seir, and as, as far as the oak of Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to Emishphat, which is Kadesh, and struck all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Thamar. And the king of Sodom went out, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar, and they set the battle with them in the valley of Siddim, with Chertolomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, the king of the nations. And it gives you some list. I'm not going to go through it. It's hard to read. Long story short, there's a huge battle. And Sodom and Gomorrah are plundered. They're plundered by Chertolomer and his allies. And in this plunder, they capture and take Lot, presumably to enslave him. And so Lot, in verse 12, is taken. They're whisked out of Sodom, going back to these lands. So Abraham gets, or Abram still at this time, gets word that his nephew's been captured. So he goes and he gathers his people together 
and he struck them and pursued them, this is verse 17, as far as Hobah, which is on the left of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother and also the women and the people. So he brings back his brother, brings back Lot, he brings back the whole shebang, right? And the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Now I want you to pay attention to a couple of things here. The king of Sodom went out to meet him. After he returned from smiting Chertolaomer and the kings which were with him to the valley of Shaveah, it being the valley of the king. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Salem, not Salem, it's Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And that he is interpreted as being Abraham. Because when you read the Septuagint account, the Septuagint says clearly this. Now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tithe of all. So it's important to note here, Abram is the conqueror. And this guy named Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, shows up. Now, Salem was not attacked by this alliance of Chedorlaomer. Melchizedek wasn't involved. But Melchizedek has heard about this, and he's come to meet Abraham, presumably because God told him to. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham as a high priest of God. And Abraham gives a tithe offering to the priest king Melchizedek. So of his plunder and all that he has, Abraham, who is the victor, gives a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, who wasn't even involved, but he's the high priest and the priest king of the Most High God and represents God through his priesthood. Okay, So understand that. This is where we see Melchizedek. I will probably do a show, it'll be a short show, but I'll probably do a show on Melchizedek because there's a lot of traditions about Melchizedek from extra-canonical sources. This is about all we know about Melchizedek from the First Testament. He's mentioned a few other times about his priesthood. We are told that Yeshua is the heir of the Melchizedek priesthood. So that's interesting that Melchizedek is so high in God's esteem that it takes the Redeemer to be the heir of his priesthood. And a lot of scholars have debated over this. This has been a huge debate for, for thousands of years. Why do we know so little about this guy? But apparently, Yeshua is the heir of his priesthood. 
it's a mystery. And so we will look at the extra canonical, the the extra biblical texts in a, in a future episode and talk about what the traditions are about Melchizedek, but just be warned. It's, it's almost all speculation and traditions that we don't have any way to verify. So uh, just understand that, that we will talk about Melchizedek in an episode. I'll dedicate an episode to Melchizedek, but most of it's going to be speculation. But anyway, so what we see here is that the king of Sodom, who was wronged and looted, doesn't honor Abram. And Abram pulls his fat out of the fire and gets his stuff back. And yet, the king of Sodom does not, he comes out to see him, but he doesn't bring wine and bread. He doesn't honor him. It's Melchizedek that does, and he wasn't even involved in the battle. It's just a point to ponder here. What's also a point to ponder is that Lot has been captured. Lot's now been rescued. So Lot is with his uncle, and he sees what goes on. That's important to note. Okay? Now, I will say this about Salem. Let me finish this up with Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem. The tradition is that Salem is a city-state. Some people have tried to say that this is the Shalem that's near Nablus and was talked about in Genesis 33, 18. And Jacob came to, to Shalem, the city of, of Shechem, uh, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from Padan Aram and pitched his tent before the city. However, we also hear another tradition about Salem. And that tradition, which is the most widely accepted tradition, is that Salem later has Jeru added to its name, making it Jeru Salem, Jerusalem. And so the city in Hebrew tradition and most accepted tradition, the city of Jerusalem is founded and ruled by the high priest of God, Melchizedek. And when he founds it, he names it Salem. And later it becomes Jerusalem and becomes the pivotal city of the promised land for the Jewish people. Okay. Whatever the case, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And this is the high priest of God. So Abram is really, really blessed. Also, not being involved in battle, he brings bread and wine to honor this nomadic shepherd. Melchizedek does right and recognizes. What does he say? All right, let's go back and see what he says. He says, Blessed be Abram of the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So he recognizes Abram as someone who has a relationship with God. Now, we don't know how he recognizes that. Presumably as the high priest of God and God being more, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but God tended to be a little more chatty with people back then than he is today. He tended to actually speak directly to people. There is a 
tradition there that God spoke to Melchizedek and said, go out, this is the, the man I have promised all these lands to, go out and bless him. And so Melchizedek does what God says. So there's a tradition there that Melchizedek recognizes Abram because God's already told him about Abram and that he's to go bless him and honor him. But notice that the guy who, whose fat got pulled out of the fire, this king of Sodom, doesn't give anything, at least at first, to Abraham. In fact, the only time he makes any offer of anything is after he's already seen the king of Salem honor Abram and give him blessings. And then Abram has given the king of Salem a tithe offering. It's only after that that the king of Sodom offers anything to Abram. And that's pretty telling. And if you notice in the scripture, Abram notices this. Now this is verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the cavalry for yourself. So he's offering that. He wants the people. But Abraham, or Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing of yours from a thread to a sandal strap, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men with me. Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So, what we see here is that the king of, of Sodom comes out. He doesn't bring wine and bread. He doesn't bless Abraham. He says, give me the people and you can, you can keep the cavalry. Well, it's begrudging. And Abram sees through it. Because he's going to then turn around and say, I made Abram wealthy. And so Abram won't take anything from the king of Sodom. Instead, he gives to Melchizedek and accepts Melchizedek's blessing. And Melchizedek honors him with food and wine. So, a lot of people point that out as a very stark contrast between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Abram already knows of the sinfulness of Sodom. And it's very clear here that Abram mistrusts the Sodomite king. Meanwhile, Lot, what's this got to do with Lot? Lot's seeing all of this. This is all happening in front of him. And he sees the way that the king of Sodom is not as welcoming as he should be or doesn't really honor Abram. And he sees how Abram mistrusts this Sodomite king. And yet, what are we told that Lot does? He goes back to Sodom. He goes back to Sodom. He sees this exchange. He sees that the king of Sodom does not honor Abram. And he sees that Abram doesn't trust the king of Sodom. That there's enmity there. And he sees that some guy who's not even involved in the battle is, is, is more 
uh, honoring of his uncle than the guy who, who just had his fat pulled out of the fire, and yet he still goes back to Sodom. And what I think that points out, I think that is a red flag, and some of the rabbinical scholars point out that that is a red flag that shows that Lot is making bad decisions. It shows that he's going places he shouldn't go. He's not a good judge of character. And instead of seeing the red flags in this exchange between the king of Sodom and his uncle, he just goes back to Sodom. And that brings us now to chapter 19, where we see Lot in Sodom. And to set this up, remember that in chapter 18, God has come to Abram and has told Abram, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to give Sarah a baby and I'm going to wipe out the cities of the plains, particularly Sodom and Gomorrah. And we get this exchange between God, and it, whether it's God directly or God through an angel is, is unclear. But what we see is this exchange, and Abraham is really trying to bargain with God, and he bargains God down to where if there's just ten righteous people, God's going to spare the city. So now we pick up in Genesis chapter 19. And the two and, and the Masoretic and the and the Septuagint are pretty dead on here, so I'm just going to read from one. And the two angels came into Sodom at evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And Lot saw, and he rose up to meet them and bowed his face to the earth. And he said, Behold now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and lodge there, and wash your feet, and rise early and go your way. And they said, No, we will lodge in the street. And he, meaning Lot, urged them. And they turned into him and came into his house. And he made a feast for them, and he baked unleavened cakes, and they ate. Now, there's a couple things to notice here. There is a view that calls Lot's behavior here into question a little bit because if you contrast it with Abram in the previous chapter, Abram sees these three men, and again they look like men, even though we know they were angels or one of them was God with two angels or maybe it was three angels. We, again, we can have that debate over what angel of the Lord actually is. But there's three celestial beings. We'll call it that. There were three celestial beings. And again, I, and I don't say that mockingly, it's just I'm not going to get into that argument about whether or not this was actually a theophany and a personage of God or whether this is an, angel, an actual angel acting in the ancient spokesman sort of tradition. Um, I tend to lean that way, I'll be honest, that this is an angel of the Lord, is an angel and is, is speaking the words of God and is being God in that ancient tradition of the spokesman where he speaks in the first person as God getting every quote right and he is the you can think of it as the mouth of God he is acting as the mouth of God I tend to lean that way but if you want to believe it's it's actually physical presence of God himself that's certainly fine it can be argued either way but that aside when Abram sees these three men 
and we'll call them that because that's the way they appeared, Abram gets up and he runs out to meet them. Some people criticize Lot because Lot's sitting by the gate of Sodom and he sees them and he rises up to meet them. Some people say, well, he doesn't run out to meet them. Well, I don't know if that's fair because we don't know where he was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He, they, might have, they might have been walking along the wall and when they round the corner, Lot finally sees them and gets up to greet them. So I don't know if it's fair to criticize Lot in this instance for not running out to meet these people. He might not have seen them. If he was sitting by the gate, you know, the, the gates you know, in those walled cities was, was fairly large. He could have been, I don't know, we don't know which gate he was sitting at. Let's say he was, he was sitting at the west gate. And he's facing one side of the arch. And they come from behind him and round right in front of him because they came from behind him. We don't know. So, I mean, I think that's a little bit unfair to judge Lot here. But you will find commentaries on Lot that say that Lot um, shows that he is not as righteous as Abraham because he doesn't rise up and run out to meet these people. I think it's a fairly logical argument. He may not have seen them until they actually crossed it right in front of his uh, right in front of his uh, field of view or, or crossed into the gate. It depends on where he was. So I will point out you will find that if you do a lot of studies on Lot that there are people out there that will criticize Lot for this. I'll go ahead and come right out and take a side on that. I don't know if that's real fair. I think we've, we're given insufficient data. The scene is not very well described in the text. So I think it's a little unfair to judge Lot on this one. Okay. But we do need to ask a question here. There's a number of ways to interpret this scene, though. One tradition says that Lot recognizes them as angelic beings because he goes up to them, and presumably there are a lot of people coming in and out of Sodom. But he goes up specifically to these guys, and he bows his face to the ground. He, he, we're told that he bows his face to the earth. He bows down before him and looks down. So one point of view is that Lot recognizes them as angelic beings here. Another view is that he doesn't recognize them as angels, but he does recognize them as beautiful young men in their prime. And while Lot is not homosexual, he's lived long enough in Sodom to know what happens to handsome young strangers. And this second view is actually backed up in verse 8 in both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. When Lot tells the crowd that's trying to get to these men that it's because of their tendency to rape people that these two strangers came to Lot's house for protection. So let's, let's start reading again. We'll start with verse 4. And we'll go through verse 8. Before they had laid down, even the men of the city, the men of Sodom, circled the house from the young to the old, all the people from its limits. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that word know in the Bible, just about any scholar will tell you, can mean several things. To know as in to meet, 
But specifically in this instance, it's the other definition, which means to know them intimately, to have sex with them. The, the British term for this is buggery. They wanted to bugger them, that is to engage in anal sex with them. And Lot went out to them, verse 6, to the door, and he closed the door behind him. And he said, My brothers, please do not act evilly. And in verse 8, Now behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them as you feed, see fit. Only do not do anything to these men because on account of this, they came into the shade of my roof. The Septuagint version says verse 8 this way, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do with them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the protection of my roof. So it's notable that this act by the Sodomites, according to one view, is one, something that Lot, knew was going to happen. So this has happened before. That's the point here. This is not something that Lot was a stranger to. He knew they did this kind of stuff. And he tells them here that it's because of this, because of this rape gang, that these people have come under my protection. So Lot, when he sees these men at the gate, knows what's going to happen. So the tradition here is that these are beautiful young men in their prime. That these, these angels are appearing as, they're not appear, appearing as old lepers or anything. They're appearing as beautiful young men in their prime. And Lot, though he's not homosexual, he can recognize a handsome dude when he sees one and he knows what the sodomites like and he knows what's going to happen. And so he tries to save these guys right when he meets them. And that seems to be backed up by verse, verse 8 here. Okay? It's also notable that this very act by the Sodomites is a sort of a signing of their own death warrants. See, if you go back to the conversation with Abraham, God says something interesting. Go back to Genesis 18. We'll start with verse 20. And Jehovah said, or the angel of the Lord said, The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is exceedingly heavy. Verse 21. Listen to this. I will go down and see if they have done all according to the cry coming to me. And if not, I will know. So God or his angel tells Abraham that there's a great cry coming against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he says that he's going to go down and see if it's really as bad as he's heard. Now most can agree that God knew already, but it's curious that he says this. Why does he say this? Well, one possible reason that some people give, one interpretation, is that this isn't God, at least not Literally, but it's an angel acting in the tradition of the ancient spokesman who acts as God, quoting God's words in the first person and, at least culturally, becoming, as I said, the mouth of God. 
In this view, the angels have been given a mission by God to evaluate Sodom and Gomorrah. And if it's as sinful as it as is said to raise the cities to the ground once Lot gets out of there. Now God knows it's that bad, but he's empowered his angels to evaluate what he already knows to be true in this view. Whether this view is correct or not, it is plausible as kings have certainly known things and sent people to deal with things, giving instruction to take action if it really is as the king already knows it to be. That kind of thing went on with kings before. And there's no reason to think that God is incapable of acting that way with his angels. I mean, he may well have done it. So I can't fault anybody for this view. And it certainly would tend to explain the phrasing used here. Thus, one point of view is that the Sodomites signed their own death warrant, in a sense, when they clearly display that their depravity is every bit as bad as the angels were told it was. Then, in a display of all too human and all too familiar to anyone who follows the news today, behavior, the Sodomites transfer their lust for these men and add anger to it compounding their error of sin and shift it to Lot. Because what they tell him is in Genesis 19.9 and they said stand back and they said this one came in to visit and must he always judge? Now we will do evilly to you rather than to them. And they pressed on the man upon Lot violently and drew near to break the door. So what they said is, is okay, you're, you're, you're Mr. Judgy. We're going to bugger you. We're going to gang rape you. Now, one thing also to note in verse 19 is that the Sodomites felt judged by Lot. They asked, must he always judge? That's pretty telling. And combined with Lot's actions may give insight to his character that's both positive and maybe not so positive. This is pretty telling. One, it shows he's got a reputation for being judgy, right? Or they feel like he's being judgy. This is used as support for the righteousness of Lot that Lot is righteous and he has been convicting them in their hearts for their sin, that he speaks out against their sin. This is one argument. But it also may, some, may say something not so positive about him too. And we'll get into that here in a minute. Let's, let's continue reading. 19.10 But the men put out their hands and pulled Lot to them into the house and shut the door. And they struck the men at the door of the house with blindness from the small to the great. And they struggled to find the door. And the men said to Lot, Who still is here with you? Bring out of this place your sons and your sons-in-law and your daughters and whoever belongs to you in the city. For we are about to destroy this place. Here you go. 1913. You see... The bargaining of Abram was for, he whittled God down to ten people. 
The angels are telling Lot, there is not ten people here. Now notice, I want to say something. I want to say something here. You've got Lot, there's number one. You've got his wife, there's number two. We know there's at least two virgin daughters. We know that because he says, I have two virgin daughters. Notice, though, what the angels say. They say, bring out of this place your sons and your sons-in-law and your daughters and whoever belongs to you. He's got sons-in-law. We know that also because it talks about that he, he, he goes out and tries to get... Uh, it talks about in, in verse 14, Lot went out to speak to his sons-in-law and those taking his daughters. And he said, rise up, go out from this place. For Yehovah is about to destroy the city. And he seemed as one joking to his sons-in-law. But the angels also mention his sons. Lot has sons. He's got older daughters, at least two, because the plural is used. And he's got these virgin daughters. So he has at least two sons, because he has, bring out of this place your sons. He has at least two sons, because the plural is used. So let's tally up how many we've got here. We've got Lot, that's one. We've got Mama, that's two. We've got two daughters, that's three and four. We've got at least two older daughters that are married. And then we've got at least two sons. All right, so that gives us eight people. Lot, one, two, three, four daughters, one, two sons at least, and a wife. That gives us at least eight people. Plus, there's at least two sons-in-law. So, Lot allowed his daughter to marry unrighteous men. If the sons-in-law, if his, if his family had been righteous, if, if Lot had raised his family in righteousness, and they had been righteous, and if the sons-in-law were righteous, and, and Lot had insisted that his daughters only be allowed to marry righteous men, you would have had your ten right there. That's important to note. So in verse 19, 13, we find the failure of Lot. He had eight people with his, uh, a lot, well, eight people, seven of which were blood, and then his wife. And then he's got two sons-in-law. He had ten people. Let's tally that up again, because I want to press that, that point home. Lot, his wife, two virgin daughters, at least two married daughters, because the plural is used. That gives us six people. He's, he's got sons. The angels talking about bring your sons. They use plural, so there's at least two sons. That's eight people. There's at least two married daughters, so there's two sons-in-law, at least. So there's ten people. The city would have been spared if Lot had done his duty and ensured his family was righteous. 1913 is a very simple verse. The angels are saying, For we are about to destroy this place, for the cry of them is great before Yehovah, and Yehovah has sent us to destroy it. Very simple verse. But with cataclysmic judgment, not just against Sodom and Gomorrah, but it has cataclysmic accusation 
against Lot. And we see that Lot is considered, in a way, as a man not to be taken too seriously. Because his sons-in-law think he's joking. They think he's an idiot. They think he's a fool. They think he's, he's joking with them. They don't even for a minute take this seriously. He can't even convince his daughters who are married. Nor apparently can he convince his sons that he's serious. 1915. And when the dawn arose, then the angels urged Lot, saying, Rise up, take your wife and your two daughters who are found, lest you be cut off in the depravity of the city. So, like I said, he couldn't find ten people. He had ten people in his family, both blood and marriage. Couldn't find ten righteous people. Now, it's there's a view out there that this bargaining of Abraham for ten is the reason that in Jewish tradition a, a group gathered together for prayer is supposed to be at least 10. I don't know if that's true, but uh, that is something that's been been proposed out there that, that maybe that, that tradition of, of people gathered together for, um, for 10 is the reason this is, you know, this is the tradition is it comes out of out of this, that ten righteous people gathered together um, <clears throat> gets the protection of God. So, just to, as an aside there, that is a tradition out there. I don't know how true that is in Jewish thought, but that is something that I've heard from more than one source. It's also noteworthy here that Lot's sons don't come with him. They're mentioned by the angels, but Lot's sons don't come with him. They're not righteous. Lot's married daughters don't come with them. They're not righteous. His sons-in-law are not righteous. They don't come with them. And all of them are judged with the wicked. Now, it may be argued also that his wife and his two remaining daughters are not righteous either. The only one that really has a remote chance of being righteous is Lot himself. But again, was he? We've already seen he's a complete failure as a father and head of his household. He couldn't even keep his children in the way of God. So he's a failure as a, as a father and a spiritual leader. Yet we do see that the people of Sodom view him as judgy, so obviously he does speak out. Yet he, let his, he lets his daughters marry wicked men. He allows his herdsmen and servants, because remember, we're told one of the reasons he winds up in Sodom is his herdsmen were fighting with Abram's herdsmen. So his herdsmen and servants don't come with him. They are totally absorbed into the wickedness of Sodom. So he starts out with this entourage of people that are his herdsmen, his servants, and his family that walk in the ways of God, that have been there with Abram, that know how to walk in the ways of God. And Lot loses pretty much all of them to the sin of Sodom. Hmm. That's interesting. He's lost pretty much everybody 
It cannot be argued that Lot was a righteous and strong spiritual leader. We're still in the debate right now about his righteousness, but he's not a strong spiritual leader. He can't keep his own family righteous in the eyes of God or even wanting to be part of, of God's covenant people. He can't keep his own family in order. Now, let's go back and look again. Lot seems to try to spare the strangers from the gang rape, rape right? But let's look at another glaring problem with Lot. How does he try to weasel out of these people beating on his door? Does he show anger and condemn them? No. That may not have been a smart move, let's be honest. He might have just incited them more. So he might have been trying to be more diplomatic. But the way he tries to continue to protect his guests is he offers his virgin daughters to be gang-raped in their stead. Now, it says something about the Sodomites that you've got two virgin women there that are being offered for your pleasure and, you get, and you're insulted by the offer. And so you're going to try to rape the old man? But that's exactly what they say. That tells you a lot about Sodom right there. But what tells you something about Lot is the fact that he offers his daughters to be raped. What kind of father is this? Well, unsurprisingly, there's several views. Lot's righteousness, or lack thereof, is the unspoken subtext of the debate between Abraham and God concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels show up and Abraham makes a meal of meat and milk, and that, by the way, is a dietary restriction. Jews can't mix uh, dairy and, and meat, but that doesn't take place until the law of Moshe. So a lot of people wonder about that because it actually talks about in the law of Moses that you can't have meat and milk together. But Abraham feeds the angels meat and milk. Well, that dietary restriction is not imposed yet. So he's all right. Uh, just understand that's not a mistake by Abraham. Some people try to say, well, Abraham goofed here. No, 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 no. That law is not put into place until Moshe. Okay. Um, so Abraham then converses with them, and they leave, two going to Sodom, and one hanging back and speaking with, with Abraham. And Abraham begins to haggle like a merchant in a bazaar uh, with God directly or indirectly through this angel. That's un Again, that's unclear. And he whittles God down, as, we, as we've mentioned before, to ten. And I, I told you that, uh, that in some traditions it's viewed that that's why the Jewish requirement for a, a minion or prayer quorum uh, is, the requirement for that is, is 10 people together for a religious service. Uh, and, and that's apparently one of the traditions. Yet, Lot lost his righteous people instead of converting more. And his own righteousness is definitely subject to question as he waxes and wanes between this righteous and downright criminal behavior. 
Now, some people have tried to justify this, and, and, and one of them, George Coates, even states that the spectacle of a father offering his virgin daughters to the will and pleasure of the mob that was seeking to despoil his household would not have seemed that as shocking to the ancient sense of proprieties as it may seem to us. Now, such views as that have colored commentary about Lot for centuries as the scholars have attempted to salvage Lot's crimes as simple foibles of those folks back in those days that had really different values than we do. But Lot's critics, on the other hand, have a nasty tendency to gloss over the fact that he had no problem letting his daughters get gang-raped by an angry mob, even if they're his critics. If you ever notice that, that Lot's critics, and yes, I said that right, that even Lot's critics try to gloss over this very stark deed of offering his daughters to be gang-raped. Instead, his critics point out that his righteousness should be questioned because he seems to procrastinate, unwilling to leave Sodom. Others question him, and question his character because he haggles with the angels about going to the little village of Zoar instead of the mountain for refuge, though he winds up going to the mountain anyway as the village of Zoar is apparently deserted when they get there. Still others have spent much time debating about the fact that Abraham runs out to meet the angels, as I mentioned before, and Lot doesn't. So a lot of people, they, they keep poking at these cursory issues and they keep not wanting to deal with the fact that God, that God has said, I'll spare ten righteous people. He goes there, there's definitely not ten righteous people. Lot, in fact, has lost people to sin. And not only that, but he seems to think it's perfectly okay to offer his daughters to be raped. And some point out that the callous way he treats his daughters is marked in its conflicting nature with his reputation later of righteousness. So the traditional narratives are basically two. But each of these two views have some internal variations. So you can actually split hairs and come up with many views, but they fall basically into two categories of views. On the one hand, you have the view that Lot is a righteous man surrounded by a sea of ungodliness. This view for Christians finds much of its origin or support from Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, start with verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an, ex an example unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Okay, so that's 2 Peter chapter 2, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Further support is that in ancient times, and in some places still today, sons are the measure of prosperity, not daughters. And daughters, according to some scholars, were simply not valued very much. 
Thus, the offering of his daughters to the mob is not so much a crime by Lot as a cultural convention. As under the sacred laws of hospitality, he would have been expected to offer his daughters in exchange for the protection of these complete strangers that were protected under guest rights under his roof. Huh. It's a little hard to swallow, though, isn't it? There's another view. The opposing view comes out of the rabbinical tradition that says that Lot was little better than the Sodomites and was lascivious, going to Sodom expressly because he was attracted to the wild party atmosphere and the sin. This view finds support in the fact that Lot undoubtedly bears witness to the king of Sodom's insulting treatment of his uncle. He bears witness to the fact that his uncle doesn't trust him as far as he could throw him. And yet Lot goes back to Sodom. Also, you can view Peter's comments in a slightly different light. One interpretation of that comment of that passage is that Lot may well have been losing his righteousness, becoming vexed not in anger, but vexed in the sense of being affected. Vexed in the sense of being desensitized and maybe even tempted to follow along. And so the vexation was more to his soul than to his morality. Indeed, that interpretation shows that rescuing Lot was an act by God of rescuing Lot before he sank too deep into sin. And that may be supported if you go back and you look at Abimelech taking Sarah to be his wife and God telling Abimelech, I didn't allow you to sleep with her so you would not sin against me. So God may have been prophylactically getting Lot out of there before Lot finally gave in. And that Peter's comment about the vexation of Lot's soul may have been vexation on a whole different level than we think of. Not just vexation of frustration with the evil, but maybe vexation in that he was becoming used to it. And it was starting to tempt him. We do see, we do see that Peter said that he was delivered from temptation, implying that Lot was tempted. Further support, many point out, is the fact that Lot allows his older daughters to marry Sodomite men who won't leave. And we're told that all of the men came to his house warning these people, and presumably that include, included his sons-in-law. Because if you look back at the scripture, what does it actually say about who showed up? Go back and let's look at verse 4 of chapter 19, before they had laid down, even the men of the city, the men of Sodom, circled the house. From the young to the aged or to the old, all the people from its limits. His sons-in-law were among those wanting to rape the men. Wow. Now, that gives a whole new level of disturbing when you look at his failure as a father. 
He not only allowed his daughters to marry sodomite men who will not leave, but his daughters are married to men who went out wanting to rape other men. And those daughters married to them are judged as unrighteous. And his sons, mentioned by the angels, are judged as unrighteous. And they're slain with the wicked. And so many people point out that if Lot was truly a righteous man, he would have seen the wickedness in the city and done his duty by his family and gotten them out of there. Once it became clear, he was not going to get converts. And especially after seeing his own men beginning to convert to Sodom's ways, a righteous man would have done right by his family and shook the dust of that place from his feet and left. Others point out that in verse 29 of Genesis 19, God makes sure that Moses writes down, and it happened when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out from the overthrow when overturning the cities in which Lot lived. He didn't remember Lot. He remembered Abraham. The implication there is that God didn't save Lot for his righteousness. He saved Lot because of his love for Abraham. Now, many who support the tradition that Lot is unrighteous or slipping into unrighteousness point to the fact that God himself, again, tells Moshe to record that specifically, that I did it for Abraham. In this view, God does this favor for Abraham because Abraham cared so much about Lot as to haggle on his behalf. So God, in his love for Abraham, spares the unrighteous Lot because he's Abraham's kin. Many also point out that Lot it was righteous enough still that he tries to save the strangers from gang rape, but his righteousness is relative. A dim light in a dark cave may seem like a sun. And so Lot was righteous compared to the Sodomites, but far from what godly standards would call truly righteous. Now, that brings us right back to giving his daughters to be gang-raped. This is what many scholars point to as Lot's most grievous offense, at least the grievous offense that's outright recorded. But like I say, I mean, it could be argued, too, that part of his grievous offense is the fact that his sons, his sons-in-law, and his married daughters have completely given themselves over to Sodom's ways of doing things, and he was completely unable to guide them effectively. Moreover, it may be just as grievous an offense in some ways that he gave his daughters over to such sinful men that were apparently, as the scripture says, it was all the men from the youngest to the oldest that were out there demanding to gang rape these people, suggesting very strongly that even his sons-in-law were out there. So what I'm about to talk about with this, giving his, his uh, youngest daughters to the crowd as being his most grievous offense, 
may actually not be his most grievous in many ways. But uh, it sort of depends on your point of view. But let's delve into this because certainly from our morality today, it is probably his most grievous offense that we see actually described. Interestingly, the scholars, even the ones that consider Lot righteous, are forced to concede that the crime of rape is flatly condemned in biblical law and harshly punished in biblical legend. Both the Bible itself and centuries of Bible scholarship and exposition on the scriptures confirm that children were regarded by Israelites as nothing less than a blessing and gift from the one God. In fact, most scholars agree that the very act of surrendering his daughters to a mob of miscreants intent on gang rape was absolutely abhorrent to Semitic morality. And so the notion that other scholars present that Lot simply was a, a product of his culture and they just didn't value their daughters very much seems at odds with the actual Semitic morality presented in the biblical scriptures and from what we know of the morality of Semites and specifically the Jewish people at the time. So what else can we say about Lot? Well, let's continue reading. We're going to start with Genesis 19 verse 16. And it tells us that Lot lingered. In other words, he hesitated. Here's the scripture. And he lingered. And the men, these being the angels, lay hold of his hand in his wife's hand and on the hand of his daughters. Jehovah having mercy on him. And they caused him to go out and they put him down outside the city. Now notice this. They, it, it, this is a, a nice way of saying this, but they took him by the hand. They led him out. They basically dragged Lot and his family outside the city. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 17. And it happened as they led them outside, he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, Lord. Now, they're just telling him, this, this judgment's not coming just on Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice this. This judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is, is so great that it has sort of become the, the symbol of the iniquity here. But what we see is, is this judgment's not against Sodom and Gomorrah alone. Apparently, the other communities around there were so sinful because they were following in Sodom and Gomorrah's example that this judgment is, all, is against the entire plain, that entire area. It's, about, it's against Sodom, it's against Gomorrah. You're going to find out that the little town that they renamed Zoar is included in this judgment. And Lot tries to talk them out of it. But... The scriptures give us insight that maybe it didn't escape judgment, but the physical structures did. Listen and pay attention to the scriptures. 
So we're picking up back with verse 18. And Lot said to them, O no, Lord, behold now, your servant has found grace in your sight, and you have magnified your mercy, which you have shown me in saving my life. And I am not able to escape to the mountain, lest some evil overtake me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee there, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it, is it not a little thing that my soul may live? And he said to him, he meaning God through the angel, See, I have lifted your face also as to this thing, without overthrowing the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I am not able to do anything until you have come there. So the name of the city was called Zoar. So this is that city that we find out earlier was, was uh, being attacked by that uh, coalition that Abram ultimately defeats. This city had a king as well, and it was known by another name. And that name goes back to verse 1, when we were talking about uh, this whole invasion of the plain that had Sodom and Gomorrah on it. And remember, and it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and it gives you this big long list. At the end of verse 2, it says, And the king of Bela, which is Zoar. Now, what is a little bit odd here is, if Zoar which is known as Bela in, the, in this scripture, and it says king of Bela, which is Zoar. What seems to be pointed out here, and this is the way this scripture is sometimes interpreted. It's sometimes interpreted that Shem Eber is the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar, is sometimes interpreted as the king of Bela's name is Zoar. But sometimes because in chapter 19 you see that this little town he's talking about becomes named Zoar, some people interpret this scripture as being the king of Bela who is unnamed, and then, but they're talking about that Bela is Zoar. So understand that scripture is actually interpreted two different ways. So just, just understand, so when you look back at chapter 14, and go back and forth, chapter 14, chapter 19, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And in that list of kings that are involved, some of them are allies of uh, Chedorlaomer, excuse me, Chedorlaomer, I hate that name. It's like Ishbibinab. It's just, it's hard to pronounce. But uh, the allies of Chedor Laomer are listed, and then the ones he's against, they made war against Bera, who's the king of Sodom, uh, of Sodom, uh, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, which is king of Adma. See, Adma is another city-state that's on that plain. Shem Eber, which is king of Zeboim, and that's another one that's supposedly in this plain. And the king of Bela, which is Zoar. So, again, that interpretation, when you read that, 
Okay, so is the king of Bela named Zoar, or is Bela what is renamed Zoar in chapter 19? So, you know, when you're, when you're reading this scripture through the first time, it's very easy to say, well, the king of Bela's name is Zoar. But then when you get to verse 19, it causes doubt. Because then you're like, okay, well, he talked about this little town. He doesn't name it. And then he says, and this town, you know, became known as Zoar. Well, now it throws verse 2 of chapter 14, that last part, into doubt as to, who, as to what Zoar is. It's, is it referencing the name of the king? Or is it referencing the name that Bella becomes known as later? So just to point that out, that, that's been a source of debate for people uh, a long time. And uh, I, I don't know that, that people have really found agreement on that to this day. But let's look, read... Uh, Genesis 19:22 one more time because he says the angel is saying hurry escape there for I'm not able to do anything until you have uh, come there so the name of the city was called Zoar so it's because of this that the name of the city gets changed to Zoar so some biblical scholars say that this little city that Lot's begging for is Bella and afterwards it becomes known as Zoar okay so just understand that so the, the, the little debate there but what's important to note here is that Lot lingers in the city and the angels basically have to pull him out. And they reveal in verse 22 that they're forbidden to destroy the city while Lot's in it or near enough to be killed. Now, when you're talking about the question of Lot's integrity and his, his, his righteousness, you, you've got to ask, why does Lot linger? There's two major interpretations of this. One, and the one that's sometimes preached, it's sort of interesting. You will find uh, preachers that will talk about, well, this shows that Lot uh, was, you know, really, really liked Sodom. But then they'll turn around and talk about how righteous he is. It's like they, they contradict their own argument. But I just want to point that out. You'll see that. You'll see people using... The first interpretation of his lingering, but they'll, then they'll turn around and say he was righteous, which doesn't seem to go hand in hand. But the one is that he did, the one view that, that is very commonly expressed is that he did not want to leave Sodom, that he'd grown comfortable there, and is far more at peace with the iniquity than tradition has led us to believe. There's another interpretation, and frankly, if I'm being objective, it may equally hold water is that Lot's concerned about his sons and his married daughters, and he doesn't really want to leave them behind. He wants, he wants more time for them to change their mind and come, and he's trying to stall till he just can't anymore. The problem that some people, that critics of that view, point out is that the, the Bible does not state that he is stalling to try to get his sons and his, his married daughters to show up. And he doesn't even beg the angels to tarry a little longer to give them more time. In fact, he doesn't beg for his married daughters and his sons at all. Furthermore, if we are to believe that Lot's offering his younger daughters to a rape mob just because he didn't value his daughters much, then we have, a pro we have a problem with this apologist interpretation of the hesitancy of Lot that he was not wanting to leave his daughters 
specifically, other people point to that, yeah, the angels mention sons. Some people ignore the sons and just talk about the, the married daughters. But the people that say that he was hesitating because of this, they still can't reconcile his concern for them with the fact that he was going to take his younger daughters and throw them to the mob to a bunch of rapists. It seems inconsistent that he w doesn't mind having his daughters raped, but he's worried about his daughters being killed that stay behind. It, it, it seems inconsistent. And some people have even commented that, quote, strange it seems to then say that he was willing to risk his own life to save his older daughters a day after offering his younger daughters to a rape game. So, that's a tough one to call. The next thing we see about Lot, though, moving past that, because we're never going to settle that. It's just something for y'all to ponder. But the next thing we're going to see about Lot is that he haggles with the angels about where to go. He wants to go to a small village that may be Bella and is later called Zoar. But why? One commentator stated that unlike Abraham, Lot's haggling comes across more like an Abbott and Costello routine. In fact, he winds up still having to go to the mountains because... Th though he reaches Zoar, it's deserted. So his haggling seems not only clumsy, but completely useless. Now some people have pointed out, well, why was Zoar deserted? Well, nobody knows. But there's two traditions that come out of that. <laughs> Big surprise, right? Just about everything we talk about has at least two traditions, if not more, right? On the one hand, it may be that Lot did not get there until after they had fled as the destru destruction begins before Lot reaches Zoar. And that is a tradition that a lot of people have, have, have espoused and some people have actually accepted. But this is one of the times I'm going to take a side on this one because a careful reading shows that that can't be the case. Because Lot, in verse 23, reaches Zoar. And the destruction doesn't start until he reaches that little village. In fact, it is in Zoar that Lot's wife turns and looks back and dies, being turned into a pillar of salt. Let's read Genesis 19.23. The sun had risen on the earth, and Lot came into Zoar. Now, just to go back, remember 22 is where God, through the angel, is telling him, hurry, escape, for I'm not able to do anything until you have come there. So the name of the city was called Zoar, right? So the destruction hasn't started yet. And he says, hurry and escape, for I'm unable to do anything until you have come there. So he can't unleash destruction until Lot reaches this city that then later becomes known as Zoar. So verse 23 again, The sun had risen on the earth, and Lot came into Zoar. Now 24, And Yehovah rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yehovah out of the heavens. So this is when it starts. So the fact that Zoar is deserted is strange. Clearly, 
when Lot and his family arrive, the destruction begins. So the argument that the people of Zoar, or Bella, whichever it is, the argument that they flee the destruction doesn't hold any water. The destruction doesn't start until Lot reaches Zoar. But there's nobody there. So one argument is they must have fled earlier. But why? Why would they flee earlier? No one can answer that. But there is a second tradition that's out there that really has no biblical support, but it does seem to fit nicely with what we see. And what that tradition is, is that Zoar is still to be judged because it was so close to the cities of the plains, specifically Sodom and Gomorrah, that it is influenced by them and is sinful. And in this view, the day of destruction likely fell on some sort of festival day or the occupants of Zoar had left to go to the city for some other reason. But they had gone toward Sodom and Gomorrah going into the range of the destruction. And so God spares the village, but He doesn't spare the people. Now, does this view have any biblical support? No. Frankly, it doesn't. It doesn't. No view of why Zoar is deserted really has any biblical support. The Bible is silent. Now, <clears throat> some people have asked, how do you know Zoar is deserted? How do you even know that? Well, it is clearly deserted because of something that we see in just a little while. After they leave Zoar, they go up into the mountains and they believe they're the last people on earth. And so obviously when they made it to Zoar, in order for them to believe they're the last people on earth, because they leave Zoar after the destruction rains down. The next day they go up into the mountains because there's no one in Zoar to help them. Now, there are several traditions that come out of this. One is that, you know, because it talks about that later on that they get wine. One of the, the views is that in Zoar, <clears throat> the girls rummage around because the place is abandoned and take as many supplies as they can some of the supplies being a couple of casks of wine, small casks of wine, and they take that up into the mountains with them. Uh, the other, there's another view that uh, the, the way they get the wine to get their father drunk later is they find caches of wine up in a cave in the mountains. Uh, certainly that was something that was done. Sometimes uh, wine was made and then stuck in, 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 uh, in caves and stuff which were more climate controlled to age. And uh, that is certainly plausible too. Uh, there's actually a third view that, uh, that miraculously God provides them with wine so they can actually engage in incest with their, with their father. That actually is a view held by some people. Um, I find, I'll be honest, a lot of people find that one disturbing that God would uh, aid them in technically raping their father. 
But just to be complete, that is a view that's out there, that God miraculously provides this wine so they can rape their father and produce offspring and produce Amnon and, or Ammon and Moab. I personally um, find that a little hard to swallow, but it is a view. Now, <clears throat> let's pick up with 25. And now they're in Zoar, right? So 24, God starts the reigning of, 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 of the, just raining hell upon the cities, right? He's fire and brimstone. And 1925, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all those living in the cities and the produce of the ground. Genesis 1926, and his wife looked back from behind him and she had become a pillar of salt. So that happens in Zoar. So let's address that. Why does Lot's wife look back? Well, are you going to guess there's multiple traditions? Because you're right. There's multiple traditions. One tradition is that she's yearning for Sodom. She has become invested in the sin. And she looks back longingly for this sinful life that she'd known that she loved so much. And so this sin of longing for that depravity of Sodom, as well as the sin of disobedience to the command not to look back, causes God to turn her into a pillar of salt. Now I should, I should point out here that if this is the case, that she is yearning to go back to Sodom, that she loves this completely depraved city, you have to to say it is concerning when you start talking about the righteousness of Lot. To put it another way, if it's the case that his wife is yearning for rape gang city, it certainly calls Lot's judgment of character into question because he married this woman. And it also calls into question his effectiveness as a witness for God and his effectiveness as a leader and husband. So I, I just have to point that out. Now the second tradition is a little disturbing too. And that tradition is that she's looking back hoping to see her eldest daughters and potentially sons running after them. She's hoping to see them coming, saving themselves from the destruction. But because of the disobedience to the command, don't look back, God kills her. Now, the trouble with this narrative is that, frankly, it makes God seem almost hateful if he kills a grieving mother for looking back for any signs of her children. So naturally, this view becomes the minority view over time, and tradition one of her yearning for Sodom and looking back for the place that she loves becomes the more orthodox tradition. But the glaring failing of Lot connected to the first tradition is never addressed. But let's move on and continue. 1927. And Abraham started up early in the morning, going to the place where he had stood there before Yehovah. 
And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and saw all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the country went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it happened when God destroyed the cities of the plain. Here we go. God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the overthrow when overturning the cities in which Lot lived. There's that verse, that verse 29, that reveals, and many scholars say that this reveals, God saved Lot, not for Lot's righteousness, but for the sake of Abraham. And as mentioned earlier, God tells Moshe specifically to record a reason for his deliverance of Lot as being for Abraham. Now, it can't be debated that there were not ten righteous people in the city. But scholars debate whether or not there were any truly righteous people in the city at all. We do see that Lot had a reputation for being judging as the Sodomites in verse, uh, in verse 9 accuse him of always judging them. So it does appear that Lot decries their sin and speaks out against it enough to be known for it. So there's a mark in the righteous column. He tries to save the men from being gang raped and convinces them to come to his house where he has some chance of being able to protect them. Mark 2 in the righteous column. He defends his guest and does not give them to the mob, protecting them, but does something that Semitic law finds absolutely abhorrent and offers his daughters to be gang-raped in their stead. Well, because of that, I'm going to have, if I'm keeping score here, I'm going to have to put a mark in each column for that one because he does defend them again and doesn't give them up when faced with threat, but he offers his daughter to be his daughters to be raped. So I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to put a mark in each column for that. And so right now the score is three for righteous, one for unrighteous. Okay. He then hesitates when commanded to leave by the angels. And they have to lay hands on him and push him out of the city. Now, that, he's, he's not obeying them. That's Mark 2 in the unrighteous column. Bargaining about where to go, I won't touch, as I don't think that his clumsy bargaining is either righteous or un, unrighteous. It just frankly makes him look a little inept and stupid. But I don't think it's necessarily righteous or unrighteous. But if we go back, and we go back and we look through what all we know about Lot, we see some other things about him that can be added to the scorecard. He takes the best land for himself, though it's his uncle that has taught him, enriched him, and protected him, and by all rights should have at least some of the best land. But Lot takes it for himself, showing greed. That's Mark 3 for unrighteous. He sees the disrespect of the king of Sodom toward his uncle and still goes back to Sodom. Moreover, he sees the disrespect shown to him by the king of Sodom or shown to his uncle by the king of Sodom and the 
honor and respect and righteousness of Melchizedek and doesn't choose to relocate to Salem. That right there is either Mark 4 in the unrighteous column or maybe we need a third column for just stupid decisions, right? But I'm going to put that right now in the unrighteous column. He allows his people to be ensnared by Sodom's sin and even his family becomes enmeshed in Sodom and falls to sin, indicating that Lot is a complete and total failure at being the head of the house and the spiritual leader. Mark 5 in the unrighteous column. But wait, there's more. Genesis 19.30 And Lot went up out of Zoar and lived on the mount, and his two daughters were with him, for he feared to live in Zoar. And he lived in the cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to come in to us, as in, is the way of all the earth. Now notice, they think they're completely alone. Now remember, this, this, if you remember to when I talked about Elijah, you know, why did Elijah get taken out of the game? Why is Elijah's ministry cut short? He is being hunted, so he flees and he despairs, and God says, why did you come here? And he says, I've been very zealous for you, but, but they've put, you know, you put your prophets to the sword, and you know, the, righteous, the righteous people have turned unrighteous, and oh Lord, I'm the only one left. And God later tells him, no, there were 7,000 who've never bent their knees to Baal. But because he'd lost faith and said, oh, I'm the only one, and got whiny, God spanks his hiney. He gets whiny and God spanks his hiney, right? What happens is, is God tells him, okay, you're going to go and anoint Elisha in your stead. He takes him out of the game. Notice here that these daughters are actually guilty of the same sin. They've completely lost faith. They have no faith at all that God has spared them, maybe with purpose. And so, rather than try to trust in the Lord... They're about to commit a very grievous sin because they think they're the only ones in the earth left. By the way, this is also support that Zoar was deserted because they said there's no man in the land to come to us as is the way of all the earth. So they thought the whole earth was desolate. They thought everybody had been killed. So that shows that Zoar was deserted. There's your biblical support for Zoar being deserted. Why it's deserted, we've got speculations but we don't have any biblical reason given. Okay? In verse 32, the firstborn is saying, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may keep alive seed of our father. And they caused their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down, nor when she rose up. So they basically get him totally and completely schnockered. This guy is absolutely schnockered. He is done. He is out of it. Doesn't remember the night. All right. And on the next day, it happened that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with my father last night. Let us cause him to drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him so that we may keep alive seed of our father. 
and they caused their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger rose up and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down nor when she rose up. And both daughters of Lot were with child. And the firstborn bore a son and called him Moab. He is the father of Moab to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called him Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Okay. Now, much debate has raged about whether or not Lot was complicit in the incest with his daughters. But the Bible says that he did not know, he was so drunk, he didn't know this was going on. And we're going to have to take the Bible at, at, at its word here. But eventually, unless he's a total idiot, he had to know how his daughters got pregnant. Remember, they were virgins when they left Sodom. I won't debate how drunk he was. The Bible says he didn't know. But the fact that his daughters were so faithless and think God has destroyed the whole world shows a faithlessness reminiscent of Elijah, as I mentioned. The failure of Lot here, though, is one in his daughters because he's raised faithless daughters who have no qualm about sleeping with her father. In tragic irony or poetic justice, Lot, who offers them to a rape mob, is then raped by his two daughters. His failure at instilling moral values in them is on full display, and what Lot, what Lot does that furthers their faithlessness has to be weighed here. Does Lot, when it looks like to them the whole world has been destroyed except for them, does Lot turn to God in the desolation of his loss? Because he's lost his wife, his sons, his daughters, his sons-in-law, his herdsmen, his herds, and his wealth. He's lost everything. Does he turn to God in his desolation? No. He crawls into the bottle. The faithlessness of his daughters, he is continuing to teach them in that same vein through his actions. And he himself has no faith. These are Marks 6 and 7 in the unrighteous column. So what we have as a score here is three marks in favor of righteousness and seven marks in the unrighteous column. It's a score of three to seven. It seems that Lot is more unrighteous than righteous based on the narrative that we have. But is that really fair? How much like us is he? Hopefully, apart from the being raped by your children, his reactions are disturbing because they're familiar. There's a desire to make a righteous patriarch out of Lot 
because the truth is that he is a shlemiel. He is a passive and foolish buffoon. He's an utterly ineffective father and leader. It may even be best to view his offer of his daughters not as the act of an unrighteous man, but as the desperate act of a total idiot with no ability or idea how to deal with the situation because at his core, Lot is a complete failure as a leader of any kind, of men or spiritually. Still, his sons slash grandsons do found nations, Moab and Ammon. And Moab becomes referred to as God's wash basin. Yet, whether it be pity for the foolish lot or a favor to Abraham, there is a thread of redemption for the incest-founded line of Lot. The Moabite Ruth marries a man from Israel and is widowed. She comes with her Jewish mother-in-law out of Moab and back to Israel and rejects the Moabite false god and embraces the god of Abraham. She then weds Boaz and her line gives rise to King David and ultimately to Yeshua. So, what do you think about Lot? I'll be transparent as I've tried to be throughout this episode. I still don't know what to think about Lot. Truthfully, he confuses me. I still can't decide if he was an unrighteous man whose only saving grace was being Abraham's kin or if he was a righteous man, but utterly ineffective and a bumbling prat. Maybe the best way to look at Lot as look, is to look at him as being a bit too human. You say, well, he was human. Yeah. But when you write about people, a lot of the humanity gets squeezed away and they become more characters in the story than tangible human beings. Maybe the best way to look at Lot is that instead of being a character in a story, he's a little too human. His failings are too close to ours. I don't mean yours specifically or mine, but ours as a people, as a species. His stupidity is ours. His ineffectiveness is ours. Maybe he seems too much like folks in our news cycle today. Look at the news and see this ineffective leadership, the stupidity, people doing horrible things in, in tough situations because they just don't know what else to do. Yet, despite his obvious failings and the evil of his false God-worshipping descendants, God redeems something from that big mess and brings forth redemption in the flesh. So maybe it's best to look at Lot and realize that the real take-home message here is that it doesn't matter how ineffective you are, 
It doesn't matter the mistakes you make. It doesn't matter how flippin' stupid you are and the bad decisions you make. God can redeem anything if redemption is sought. And with that, I'll call this episode finished. This is Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies, and I'm Dr. Mick Robison. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode. And if you have, if it's been thought-provoking for you, or even just provoking, go ahead and hit that like or subscribe button and tell other people about the show. May the Lord go with you. May the peace of Yeshua be with you. May His blessings come upon you. Seek God whenever you do something dumb. Seek God when you make mistakes. God will redeem you and will help you come through horrible times even when you've brought them on yourself. Doesn't mean you don't have to go through the hardship, just like Lot having to go through hardship. But God can redeem anything. Don't lose faith. Lord bless and keep you. And until next time, good night.